0: From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Later in the hour, we're still thinking about the recall in San Francisco of Chesa Boudin, the progressive prosecutor. Pundits everywhere are saying that means Democrats need to abandon their commitment to reforming the police and the criminal justice system. Peter Dreyer does not agree. He'll explain why later in the hour. Also, the January 6th committee hearings have been powerful and devastating. John Nichols will comment in a minute.
1: At Parker, our purpose is simple we want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation and partnership we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day to find out more visit parker.com purpose parker engineering your success
2: what's the easiest choice you can make window instead of middle seat picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket outsourcing business tasks you hate what about selling with shopify
0: The January 6th hearings have been powerful and pretty overwhelming in showing that Trump knew he had lost and that he himself was directly responsible for the violent insurrection on January 6th, seeking to overturn the election. For comment on the first two hearings, we turn to John Nichols. Of course, he's the nation's national affairs correspondent. John, welcome back.
3: Pleasure to be with you,
0: John. Well, I didn't expect the hearing to be so devastating. What about you? Oh, I think they're better than I expected.
3: They have finally figured out something that Democrats are are very bad at usually, and that is having a coherent narrative. These hearings started with a point, uh, that is, that there was an attempted coup, and Donald Trump was at the center of it. And it said there's a series of uh, pieces of evidence that will confirm this, and they appear to be following through on that very effectively.
0: The striking thing about day two on Monday, which was on the origins of the big lie, was that all of the testimony came from Republicans. These were his campaign advisors. This was his inner circle. They had all told him repeatedly and emphatically that he had lost the election, starting when he wanted to declare uh, victory on election night, his whole crew abandoned him with a couple of exceptions. Even if Ivanka was telling him he shouldn't go out and declare victory,
3: they're all Republicans. I think that's exactly right. These are the people that he hired or accepted as his inner circle. They're not necessarily uh, the people that he trusted. Donald Trump is above all, A businessman and he's not a politician. And so he didn't have an inner circle of ideological allies. And he had a group of people that he basically hired in uh, to do particular jobs. Now, some of them were family members. But, uh, you know, even if you look at the Trump organization, even family members tended to have hired in responsibilities. At the end of the day, everything about Trump has always been about Trump. It's about his gut instincts. And so you had all these people who I think were giving him you know, essentially the right information for two reasons. First off, they were saying, you know, this is reality and, you know, welcome to it. And here are some ways to deal with it that will maintain your own dignity, maintain, you know, your potential political viability, things like that. And then secondly, I think they were watching out for their own future. Right? Excellent. Well, Donald Trump didn't want to hear either. Didn't He certainly had no interest in their future. Um, and he didn't want to really hear what they were saying. Not because he's delusional, as some people say. I think that's an absurdity. No, Donald Trump, again, he's a businessman. He was looking for somebody who would tell him what he wanted to hear so he could go forward and do do what he wanted to do. And luckily, there was an inebriated Rudy Giuliani on hand to, to take care of that task.
0: And among the forces committed to uh, reality was it was Fox News that, you know, Trump's favorite information about the world, Fox News. We all remember this moment when they reminded us about when Fox News called Arizona for Biden. And this meant basically there was no way that Trump could put together enough electoral votes to be reelected. And Trump considered this treason. Uh, what do you think was going on at
3: Fox News that night? Oh, I can tell you exactly what's going on. Fox News has an internal battle that's as significant as the internal battles within the Republican and Democratic parties and it is a battle between a group of ideologues who are willing to bend reality any way they can to advance their agenda and a group of people who are there because it's a good paycheck and uh, they actually while maybe not in a operating traditional news sense in every way want to do a good job you know they want to they want to Beat the other guys. Yeah, and
0: the other guys here are not the Democrats. The other guys are CNN and MSNBC. Absolutely. Well, and, and ABC, NBC, CBS.
3: Right. Yeah. It's 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 the rest of the media, and the center of that, you know, do a reasonably good job. Beat the other guys. Camp at Fox has always been um, the election forecast operation, and uh, they're very good <laughs> by all accounts. They're they're they've historically been good. Uh, Trump's reaction to this was those damn box people, they let me down. They didn't do what, what they're yeah. supposed to do. They aren't part of the corporation in the right way. Yeah. Um, and that then drove this huge rift uh, on election night. And if you know anything about election nights, you've got all your staff, all your aides, everybody around, um, and you do have to make instantaneous decisions. Election night tw- 2000, back when Bush was running against Gore, Karl Rove made a series of instantaneous decisions that made George Bush president. They uh, hired up all the lawyers in Florida. They got on message in a whole bunch of ways. They decided they're going to send James Baker. And these were instantaneous decisions, which all ended up benefiting Bush tremendously, even though he actually lost Florida and lost the election. What happened in the White House on election night 2020 um, was that they had a division. They didn't have a Karl Rove that they turned to. Uh, It was Donald Trump who was in charge. Donald Trump doesn't know about politics. He just knows about getting what he wants. And so suddenly his entire operation is cut off from him and he's got to build a new operation instantaneously. So who does, who is that new operation? It is inebriated Rudy Giuliani and Steve Bannon. And so out of that comes not a, a rational strategy for how to deal with, you know, some close results and recounts, potential stuff like that, but uh, a strategy for overturning the election results. What we got from the Monday hearing of the January 6th committee was insight into that. And that was it's actually I mean, as something of a historian, I find that I found it actually fascinating and riveting because we were actually inside as the, the whole thing kind of fell apart and then reassembled.
0: And let's talk about the opening hearing. The, the most striking new fact for me about the attack on the Capitol was that the Proud Boys who led the assault did not go to the Stop the Steel rally. They did not go hear Trump's speech. They headed straight for the Capitol building and prepared to attack the entrance where the marchers would arrive as soon as Trump concluded and sent them down there.
3: I don't think we knew this before. No, we didn't. We had a documentary filmmaker who told us a whole bunch of information. We knew that when this crowd arrived, they didn't know what they were going to do. And then suddenly there was clarity. They were told they weren't supposed to go beyond a certain line. And then you had people who immediately went beyond that line and went toward the Capitol. And a whole bunch of these folks said, cool, we're going with them. Well, the folks who decided to go toward the Capitol had clearly done reconnaissance, potentially had people inside who were giving them information. They, they knew where the vulnerable spots were, and they they led this crowd into the Capitol. And yeah. what becomes highly significant now is the question of why did the Proud Boys know that the crowd would be coming at this certain time? That they would be charged up, and and you know having been told to fight like hell by their president. And what sort of communication was there between Donald Trump or people associated with Donald Trump and this cadre of sort of frontline folks that were going to kind of breach the Capitol and leave folks in. And the other
0: amazing thing to me was that there were virtually no police there to defend the building. For, for any of us who've been to the you know, the Black Lives Matter protests or the Occupy Wall Street protests or any of the protests at the national political conventions of the last 20 years, the weak police defense of the Capitol on January 6th is just mind-blowing this point was made by Trevor Griffey on, on Twitter. We have been used to facing police lines. You know, you go downtown L.A. for a Black Lives Matter march. There's hundreds of cops in complete riot gear, helmets, face masks, long batons, what they call non-lethal weapons. There was nothing like that at, at the Capitol. And the, I would like to know why, why that was. They'd, they'd been told by our president that what was gonna happen was gonna be wild. Uh, they showed Steve Bannon on his podcast the night before saying that all hell was gonna break loose. Seems to me they should have known that something like this was gonna happen.
3: Look, there was no question that was under preparation. Then you, you begin to ask yourself, you know, why? What, what's the root of all this? And I think it, you know, there are many streams coming here. Um, I think that the Democrats were in a triumphalist mode that day. Um, they had the results from Georgia. Uh, they, they were about to certify Biden's election. And I frankly think they weren't thinking much about you know what Trump was going to do. I think they tended to do what, what people have always done, which is dismiss Trump as pathetic, you know and, and that he's just gonna whine and complain down the street and you know blah, blah blah. In no way though, John, does that distract from or detract from the reality? that Donald Trump urged his supporters to march on the Capitol and fight like hell, and that people associated with Trump uh, were apparently prepared to breach the Capitol illegally with an illegal purpose, with a a lawless purpose, which was to prevent uh, the count of the electoral votes and to overturn the results of an election. And so um, while the discussion about security at the Capitol is certainly appropriate and fine, you can have it, um, it ought to remain in its box yeah right it, it ought not to be allowed to you know kind of wash over or obscure the core reality and the core crime that occurred and how about uh,
0: the 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 testimony the clearest we've ever had that cabinet members discussed invoking the 25th amendment in the weeks leading up to January 6 to declare Trump mentally incompetent. We've read reports. Many people have written about people talking about this, but this is the strongest evidence we've had of that.
3: Uh, we will, I suspect, learn more about that. I think it looks like one of the later days of the hearings is going to focus to some extent on that. But you've got the people who are the lifers, right? Who are Republican lifers, and they're they're down with whoever the Republican president is. They put up with Reagan. They put up with Bush. The lesser, you know, they're more than ready to to serve in any administration. Suddenly they realize they're in the midst of something that is incredibly lawless and incredibly dangerous, in fact, is a coup. Don't make these people heroes. The notion that they discussed doing the right thing and didn't do the right thing, <laughs> that's a big deal. Excellent. It's like, it's like it's not like they're saying afterwards, damn, if only I had known we could have invoked the 25th <laughs> Amendment. What, what we're saying here is, they knew there was a 25th Amendment, They knew what the guy was doing and they didn't do it. Um, So that's, that's bad for them. And that's frankly bad on Mike Pence as well. I mean, it is absolutely clear that when all hell broke loose, uh, as Steve Bannon predicted, Mike Pence clearly attempted to, you know, save his own hide. Um, And, 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 and I would even give him a little more credit and say, he probably wanted the capital to be, you know, secured and things to be stabilized because if there's anyone in the world who wants a stable, calm, uninteresting circumstance, it's Mike. guess. <laughs> and so I'm quite clear that he was there. But, but, I mean, he went into this situation clearly ill-prepared, right? He was prepared to maybe do the right thing. He had taken some advice from Dan Quayle. Our hero, it's, Dan Quayle. <laughs> exactly. Um, but you have a lot of these players who could have, have done much more to avert this and it's it it seems absurd. It can even seem laughable, except that we have an incident where we had five people die. Yeah. Hundreds of police officers injured. Um, Long term, huge, dramatic impacts on the republic, uh, on our sense of security as regards our democracy. And so I I'm not in a very forgiving mode uh, for the members of the cabinet uh, or even, frankly, for my Pence.
0: You say, don't make these
3: people heroes. What about Liz Cheney? She seems kind of heroic to a lot of us. Yeah, look, I mean, the way she is handling herself on this committee is, is good. In fact, uh, in some cases, outstanding. I mean, you have to give her credit for that. She is a very skilled politician. She is you know, trained from birth to be this individual. Uh, and I might note, as, as many listeners of the podcast know, I'm an incredibly loyal Wisconsinite. And Liz Cheney was born in Madison. When her dad was a graduate student, uh, he didn't finish his degree, and so I think that whatever good is within her is obviously <laughs> rooted in Wisconsin. No question. But she knows she's done politically, at least in the current context. I'm going uh, in short order out to cover out to Wyoming to cover the race. The race uh, is not want... for two months. Am I it's it's not right? Not for two months, but boy, in talking to people in preparation for going out there, and maybe I'll be proven wrong. I, you know, it'd be very interesting. It would be a great story either way. Um, but yeah, you know, it sure looks like that, yeah. that her chances of getting reelected are incredibly mm-hmm. slim. So in a sense, she is creating her next legacy. She is yeah. framing out who she will be next. And there are some folks who think she may want to run for president of the United States, either as a Republican or as an independent. She's playing a useful role in the committee. I give her credit for that. But I am not going to give her credit for much else because she is a an incredibly cruel and harsh right-wing partisan who attacked virtually every member of the squad when she was in the Republican leadership, who has never seen a war she didn't like, whose stances on the issues are well to the right of Kevin McCarthy and Elise Stefanik, the woman who replaced her. But to the extent that Liz Cheney did something heroic, it was back when she voted for impeachment. And I give her that. What she's doing now is, in an odd sense, easier much easier than voting to impeach.
0: We got a letter from Liz Cheney yesterday. It says, quote, America needs leaders who are not afraid to do what's right, regardless of the political fallout. I will never forget my duty to defend the Constitution, close quote. Okay, so far, so good. But then she goes on, quote, with Build Back Better and the Green New Deal, the Democrats' radical agenda is on full display. Build Back Better is nothing but a slush fund for the Democrats' radical socialist wish list. We must stop their extreme plans. I need you on my team today. Please make your generous check out to Liz Cheney for Wyoming. $100, $1,000, or $2,900, which is the legal limit you're allowed to give. Together, we will stand strong against the Biden administration's all-out attack on our nation's fundamental principles,
3: close quote, Liz Cheney. Yeah, she's her father's daughter. If she beats Trump, I think that's a great story. I'm not, but I can tell you the other thing I think that Liz Cheney is doing is assembling a list to prepare for a potential uh, attempt to be the Republican nominee for president or even an independent candidate for president or to do something else politically. Uh, that's what Cheney's do. Liz Cheney is a very ambitious politician. Again, she is doing the right thing right now. And I don't want to beat her up for that. She's more aggressive than some other members of the committee as regards uh, accountability for Trump and some of the people around him. And I give her credit on that. But I think she has to be seen in context politically. And I think she's very, very different than the other Republican member of the committee, Adam Kinzinger, who I think really has had a a much more significant change of heart on a, a lot of Republican approaches. With Cheney, I think she is still very much a right wing Republican who happens to just really not like Donald Trump.
0: We wanna end up here on Trump. Uh, Monday's hearing was devastating in exposing the origins of the big lie, but let's not forget that Trump's entry into the political scene came when he said Barack Obama had been born in Kenya and therefore it was illegal for him to be president. And then after 9-11, Trump had said he had seen TV showing thousands of Muslims in New Jersey celebrating the 9-11 attacks. Trump's whole career has been based on big lies and millions of Republicans believe what he says. This is
3: really our problem. Yeah, of course it is. And and we, we really ought to bookmark this podcast in some sort of major way, the revelation that Donald Trump is a liar. Um, <laughs> you know, that's yeah. people are going to be struck by that. Yeah. Um, but, exactly. Uh, but no, he's an he's incredible liar and, and lying has paid off for him in a very big way. It paid off for him in business, it's paid off for him in politics, and he's gonna keep lying. And the reason he lies is twofold. Number one, uh, because it does work for him. Number two, because he figured something out that a lot of people in politics maybe struggle to figure out. And that is that there's a lot of people that like to be lied to. Hmm. They wanna be lied to. They wanna to be told that there's some sort of great, you know, conspiracy or threat, uh, that the, that people who don't look like them are, are a danger that that the border is a real problem, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They, they like the lies, lies serve politically. If we understand that and we understand that Trump isn't going to change, he's going to carry this thing forward. And that becomes the biggest responsibility of the January 6th committee. Uh, their responsibility is to make recommendations about what should be done with the knowledge that we've gained. It isn't that gain, you know, it's, they're telling us a lot of things that we didn't know which is very, very interesting, but they all sustain things that we presumed. And so the real challenge is to make a set of recommendations that say, A, Donald Trump himself will be punished. He will be held to account. And that means a uh, Department of Justice prosecution. That means potential congressional action where necessary and possible. And then, two, uh, that we will change those structures, those systems that allowed someone like Trump to uh, so damage and and threaten democracy itself. And those recommendations are are what this is all about. That's what's really going to matter. And we will get that, you know, in a matter of weeks. And so this process we're in right now is a fascinating one. It's worthy of a lot of our attention. And what's really important is that when it gets completed, that major action is made very quickly to hold Trump to account for what we clearly see that he has done. And also to make the reforms that are clearly necessary, uh, up to and including, and believe me, I know how hard this is, up to and including about abolition of the Electoral College, which underpins so many of these challenges.
0: John Nichols, read at the Thank you, John. This was great.
3: Honored to be with you, sir.
1: At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices.
0: We're still thinking about the recall last week of the progressive DA of San Francisco, Chesa Boudin. The final tally was 55 in favor of the recall, 45 opposed. Pundits everywhere are saying this is a message to Democrats to abandon their efforts to reform police departments and do something about the deep racial iniquities in the criminal justice system. They say San Francisco is telling Democrats it's time for law and order politics and cracking down on the homeless. Peter Dreyer doesn't think that's what Democrats should conclude. He's a distinguished professor of politics at Occidental College, former newspaper reporter, community organizer, senior policy advisor to former Boston Mayor Ray Flynn, and the author of seven books, the most recent of which published this year are Baseball Rebels, the players, people, and social movements that shook up the game and changed America, and a companion volume, Major League Rebels Baseball Battles Over Workers' Rights and American Empire. He's also a contributor to The Nation. Peter Dreyer, welcome back. Thank you, John. Okay, the district attorney lost a recall battle in San Francisco. Chase Aboudin, committed progressive, terrific person, also a, com- uh, a contributor to The Nation a guest on this podcast a couple of times. He wanted to end over-incarceration. He wanted to end cash bail. He wanted to stop the prosecution of minors as adults. And he wanted to start filing homicide charges against city police officers who killed people unjustly. But let's start with how he got elected in the first place two years ago. His defeat, you wrote at Talking Point's memo, quote, should not have been a surprise if you know how he won election in 2019. And that's because San Francisco has an unusual voting system.
4: Tell us about it. It's called uh, ranked choice voting. A couple of cities have it. And basically what happens is you vote for as many candidates as you want and you rank them. And the candidate that comes in last of all the ballots, those uh, votes are redistributed to the people that got your second or then your third or then your fourth until somebody gets 50% plus one. And so that's how Chesa Bodine got elected. It's hard to say that he had a real mandate for the progressive agenda that he was pushing. And immediately after he got elected, a lot of the Republican billionaires, in, not only in San Francisco, but in the larger Bay Area, and the police unions began to organize to uh, to stop him, implementing his agenda and to try to recall him. They, they were talking about recall from the day he took office. And in addition to that, um, there have been some high profile crimes in San Francisco and clearly a big homeless population. And he became the, the scapegoat basically for those public safety issues that people had, even though his job, his office wasn't responsible for dealing with those issues. And in fact, crime went down, major crime categories went down well, he was the DA.
0: So he got 36% of the first round votes two years ago, and then he got 45% in the recall. So he actually improved nine points, but not enough to win the recall. And of course, a recall is a yes or no choice, which is very different from running uh, against a specific challenger.
4: Yes, he wasn't running against somebody who had a different point of view. And when people are angry, They say, you know, kick out the people who are now in office. Well, let's talk about the
0: other district attorney elections in the Bay Area last week. On the other side of the Bay Bridge in Alameda County, the city of Oakland, there was a contest
4: for district attorney. Uh, What happened there? Another progressive woman named Pamela Price, a civil rights lawyer, running on basically the same kind of platform that Chainsa Bodine had. Uh, came in first in the DA election with uh, 40% of the vote in a uh, four-person race. So She's going to have to uh, run in a runoff against the person that came in second, who was a kind of law and order candidate that got 31% of the vote. So the voters of nearby Alameda County had a dear, very different perspective. And then in Contra Costa County, which is also in the Bay Area, a former judge, also a progressive like like Bodine, Diana Becton, she's she's the incumbent, and she won with 57% of the vote against a a law and order prosecutor. And so um, even in the Bay Area, you see very different outcomes. So there are things unique to San Francisco, which helped to defeat Bodine, but it's really silly to try to um, generalize that that tells you something about what the Democratic Party should be doing about criminal justice all over the country.
0: And these three progressive district attorney candidates uh, in the Bay Area are, of course, part of a national movement. The first progressive prosecutor in the United States to win election was Larry Krasner in Philadelphia. Chasa was second. Los Angeles, George Gascon was third. And there have been some more since then in the last couple of years. Yeah.
4: Remind us about that. There have been over a dozen progressive district attorneys and prosecutors elected all over the country, in Chicago, in Boston, in Austin, Texas, in Corpus Christi, Texas, in rural Georgia, in Ohio, and in Philadelphia where Larry Krasner won, and in Chicago where Kim Fox was elected, the uh, progressive DA, they've both already been reelected. And so uh, there's no evidence that there's a, a backlash against these progressive district attorneys around the country but there was a backlash in San Francisco. And I think the lesson is what goes out in San Francisco stays in San Francisco. Okay.
0: <laughs> well, there is coming a challenge to the progressive pro- prosecutor in Los Angeles, organized by the same forces, the police unions, the conservative uh, billionaires. In LA, there's a campaign underway right now to gather signatures to put the recall of George Gascone on the ballot in November. Uh, they got another couple of weeks. The deadline is July 6th. To come up with 566,000 validated signatures. How are they doing in, in uh, getting enough signatures to get the recall of George Gascon in L.A. on the November ballot?
4: So uh, George Gascon was uh, elected uh, D.A. of L.A. County, the largest county in the country. He beat a pro-police law and order incumbent. And as soon as he got sworn in, the same forces, the police unions, the prosecutors unions inside his own office and right wing billionaires like Jeff Palmer, the, one of the wealthiest people in, in Los Angeles, who was a, a big Trump supporter. Other people like that. They immediately began a recall campaign against George Gascone. and they actually weren't able to get enough signatures the first time they tried this. So they're trying again. I think the defeat of uh, Bodine uh, gives them a little more momentum. And I would not be surprised if they get the roughly half a million signatures they need. But again, the voters are not talking about criminal justice, basically money versus people. You've got these billionaires and these one order cops unions, prosecutor unions that basically want to go back to the old ways of lock them up and throw away the key. And public opinion polls in San Francisco and L.A. show what they don't like is, you know, seeing lots of homeless people on the street. And that's a housing and mental health problem, not a criminal justice problem for the DA. But they've got to take some responsibility for it. And George Gascon, I think, is a much better politician than Chase Bodine was in San Francisco. He's got a much broader coalition. He won by a much bigger margin when he ran for it. And it's going to be a tough race, but I think he'll be able to do it because he's much more popular. And I also think he's been quite effective uh, as the DA. But unlike Larry Krasner in Philadelphia, who the you know within a month or two after he took office, he fired all the prosecutors in his office that didn't agree with his progressive views about incarceration and treating children as adults in the criminal justice system, and so forth. Neither Bodine nor uh, George Katsounopoulos, under civil service laws, they can't get rid of those people in their own office. And so in L. A. in particular, and also in San Francisco. The prosecutors are not happy with having a progressive boss, and the police are not happy. And in both cities, the police are telling people on the street, they're basically already campaigning against Goscone. They're telling people that, that he shouldn't be elected, which is not something that police should be doing. But importantly, they're not investigating a lot of cases. They're basically, I wouldn't call it a strike, but it's a slowdown. Yeah, The cops are not doing their jobs. And then they're blaming Gascone, as they did Boudin, for uh, whatever increases in crime there are. And, of course, this all takes place during the pandemic when people were desperate. And there was an increase in every city in the country, practically, in homicides, particularly, ironically, in cities like Jacksonville, Florida, and Oklahoma City, that have Republican DAs and Republican mayors. So this is not a Democratic thing. So...
0: Homelessness is especially a big problem in California. Lots of homeless people want to be in California because it's not cold in the winter. But that that does impose a tremendous burden on whoever is in office.
4: A lot of people in our cities, Democratic cities, and Republican cities, as well as some suburbs, don't like seeing encampments of homeless people, some of them urinating you know, in public and some of them using drugs but the crime problem is separate from the homeless problem. Most of the people that commit crimes in LA and San Francisco are not homeless. But this, the uh, the recall supporters conflated those two issues, knowing that people don't like this sense of public disorder. And that is something that we need to deal with. And we need to deal with it by building more affordable housing, protecting tenants from eviction, providing more mental health services for people, not sweeping people off the streets and sending them to jail. But the sense of our cities are out of control, whether they're Republican or Democratic cities, is definitely something that right-wingers are taking advantage of, just like Richard Nixon did, just like Ronald Reagan did, you know, the law and order candidates. And I think we have to deal with that. And we have to deal with that In L.A., when it comes to the next uh, mayor, when Rick Caruso, the billionaire mall developer, is basically running on a platform of sweeping the homeless off the streets and throwing them in jail against Karen Bass, who's got a much more compassionate but pragmatic way of looking at it. But so far, uh, Rick Caruso is outspent in the primary. He outspent Karen Bass 11 to 1. Now that they're both in a runoff, Karen Bass will have a lot more money. She'll be able to go toe to toe with Caruso. She'll have a much bigger get out the vote effort because the labor unions will now unite behind her. And uh, I think that Rick Caruso will not win. But the fact that he was able to get 40% of the vote in the primary tells you two things. One, people are concerned about what they see as public disorder. And secondly, if you have enough money, you can practically win almost anything. In American politics, but um, I think Karen Bass will be able to meet him uh, with uh, with equal amount of money in the runoff. So I'm more optimistic than some people are about the mayor's race in L.A.
0: Peter Dreyer teaches at Occidental College and writes for, among other places, The Nation magazine. Peter, thanks for talking with us today. Thank you.